0: Well, As we continue in worship, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We will be in Acts in just a few moments, but I want to put a central thought in your mind as we begin. This is in on page 1017 if you're using the Blue Bibles. Undoubtedly, this is a passage... That has become a favorite of many, and for very good reason. Now please follow closely as I read First Peter chapter 5, and we will read verses 6 and 7. And this is before we turn to Acts chapter 12. In 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, this great apostle said, These marvelous life, transforming hope, giving words. Humble yourselves, therefore. Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. I begin here because Acts 12, and you can turn there if you would like. In Acts 12, the Apostle Peter shows us what it looks like for us to cast all our anxieties on God. So please turn to our passage. Truth be told, the events that we encounter in Acts chapter 12 would be enough to destroy a man's faith, shatter his hope, and send him quickly and straight into an abyss of despair. But this is not what we find in the Apostle Paul. So without any further comments, consider with me our first point. As we consider anxiety and worry The first thing we learn is the ever-present potential for anxiety. This is where we begin. Trials and tribulations. The ever-present potential for anxiety, trials and tribulations. This is life in a fallen world. Let us read together verses 1 through 4 of Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed... James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he has seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squa- squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Without a doubt, our first century brothers and sisters must have felt like Mr. Bilbo Baggins felt during his unexpected journey. Having barely escaped the threat of violence from the evil goblins, the habit was put at risk of being eaten by wolves. And so Tolkien writes, a proverb was born that said, out of the frying pan, into the fire. The more I read the book of Acts, the more it feels as if this was the pattern. These Christians went from one trial to the next. Their world was certainly not hospitable to their message. They suffered persecution, oppression, martyrdom, and ongoing threats, all of, all of which were attacks of the enemy meant to break their soul and bring about terrible discouragement and anxiety and worry. And just in case you are beginning to forget, my brothers and sisters, the apostles were not stoic, pretending as if their suffering wasn't even real. Neither were they Superman. They were men of flesh and blood who understood worry and anxiety and fear and everything else that is common to man. And yet they always triumphed. Even James, the son of Zebedee, who died at the hands of Herod. Now let's see why. In our passage, the new trial and the new tribulation that has come upon the disciples is in the form of death and imprisonment. When Luke says about this time in verse 1, he means about the time when the gospel made its way into the city of Antioch. So while these Christians were escaping one persecution, another one arose, this time at the hands of Herod. Herod. Who is this Herod? Herod here in Acts 12 is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa. His grandfather was Herod. Anybody know? The great, whoever said it, good for you. Herod the Great, the great, the man who ordered the murder of all infants in Bethlehem for fear that another king had been born. You remember that in the Gospels. That was his grandfather. His uncle was Herod Antipas, the man to whom Pontius Pilate sent Jesus during his trial and mocked Jesus. As you can see, Herod Agrippa of Acts 12 belonged to a very wicked rule uh, or or, uh, line of rulers. By the time of these events of Acts 12, he was the man in charge, and he had a large region, and he could do virtually anything he wanted. He could kill And he could let live at will. Politically speaking, Herod was an opportunist. He knew that he needed to keep the Jewish community happy. Now, we don't know the exact reason why he wanted to persecute the church or why he actually killed James, the brother of John. Regardless of the motive, we know what happened. Herod killed James, the brother of John, most likely by beheading. He cut his head off. James became the second martyr of the church, the first one being Stephen. But James is the first and the only apostle of Jesus, whose martyrdom is actually recorded for us in the book of Acts. His death, the Bible says, pleased the Jewish community which was, of course, under the influence and the authority of the Sanhedrin, the same group of men who previously had Peter arrested and Stephen killed. So let me ask you this. What do we do about James and his death? I will return to that in a little while. Don't lose sight of that. For now, consider Peter's circumstances. He, too, was persecuted, and he was thrown in jail. The plan was to wait until... The Passover celebrations were over, and then to have Peter also executed by the sword. Also, and most likely, by beheading. Why wait? Because Herod wanted to keep the Jewish community happy, and it would have been an insult to have this execution done during the Passover. So Herod waited. But the point being made is as follows. These were very troubling times, difficult times, Difficult enough to test anyone's faith and lead to severe worry and to severe anxiety. If you wonder what anxiety looks like, just imagine yourself being thrown in jail by an unjust ruler and waiting for your head to be cut off just so that your death may entertain a community of people that hate you. The potential for anxiety and worry, especially on Peter's part, was quite, quite high. But this is what we see next. The next point, the never-ending duty and privilege of the church. And what is that? Prayer to God. Prayer to God. In the midst of this horrible circumstances, we read in verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison. But Ernest's prayer for him was made to God by the church. We know that the church prayed for Peter. That's easy enough to see. But what does prayer assume? Prayer assumes two things, brothers and sisters. Dependence on and knowledge of God. Notice that the church did not go to Herod asking for a favor to release Peter. These Christians did the only thing they knew to do in dire circumstances such as this one. They prayed, meaning they knew they depended on God for all things, and they also knew that their God was the ultimate and true sovereign over all things, not Herod, not Herod. You see, prayer reveals much about us, doesn't it? If you want to know the the true spiritual health of a Christian, the first place to look is not to their book knowledge, but to their prayer life. But Why? Because prayer is the evidence that the heart has actually been captured by the knowledge of God and that the heart is resting and depending upon him for everything. So we know the church prayed. Now let's look at Peter's response. And here we find the ever-growing convictions of the peaceful heart. The ever-growing convictions of the peaceful heart. And here's the first conviction. Anxiety and worry do nothing. That is the first conviction of the peaceful heart. Anxiety and worry do absolutely nothing. Verses six and seven. Now when Herod was about to bring Peter, Peter out from prison, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. I can just imagine the angel thinking to himself, I just came from heaven. I'm standing right next to this man. I just shine a supernaturally bright light inside this prison cell, and this dude won't wake up. He had to strike Peter to wake him up. So, what do we do when life turns dark? The unexpected happens, and all seems hopeless. Well, according to Peter, we go to sleep. What a statement that is. Remember the circumstances. Peter was chained to two soldiers and just hours away from being beheaded. This being the case, you you wouldn't expect him to be sound asleep. Yet he was. Peter, the rock, slept like a rock because he rested upon the cornerstone which is Christ. Interestingly, the Bible does indicate that sleeping and peace go hand in hand. As David fled from his son Absalom, who was seeking to take his life, David wrote in Psalm chapter three, verses four and five, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. The Lord sustained me. In other words, in the middle of these very trying times, David slept. What else can you do? Worry never fixed anything, ever. Peter knew this. So right before he was beheaded, he slept. He slept. Consider the next conviction. The next conviction of the peaceful mind is this. Our work is over When God says so. Our work is over when God says so. Verses 8 through 10. And the angel said to Peter, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And Peter did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now it is clear that God uses angels to deliver his people from harm so that they may continue in his service. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar, an angel came to rescue them in Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. After Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and was left there for an entire night, also an angel protected him from the lions, according to Daniel 6, verses 20 through 22. This is the second instance of angelic deliverance in the book of Acts, and we will see one more later on in the book. But what is the message we can glean from this? Certainly, Not that we should also expect God to send angels to us to deliver us supernaturally from our troubles, although I suppose God could. But the message is greater than that. What is the message? It is the message that actually fills the heart with peace, even in the most extreme circumstances. It is the message to which a man by the name of John Patton held on. John Patton was a missionary to a cluster of islands named the New Hebrides, which were infamous for one thing, and some of you may know this. They were home to cannibals. They were home to cannibals. On top of that, the natives practiced infanticide and widow sacrifice, meaning when a husband died, his widow was immediately killed so that she could serve him. In the afterlife, it was a brutal existence filled with nothing but idolatry and death. John Patton went there to see these people turn to Christ and worship the true and living God. Amazingly, in a period of about 15 years, Patton lived to see this become a reality. Many of them turned away from their idols and their culture of death and they turned to the Lord Jesus. But this came at a very high price for John Patton. For much of his entire life there, he faced many intense moments of trials and tribulations, some brought about by the natives and their hostility and others by deep sadness and loss. These things could have shaken any man's faith to his core. But in one particular occasion... As John Patton was actually trying to escape literal death at the hand of some of these natives, this happened. In Patton's own words, I quote, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all these scenes. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me that nothing at all could hurt me without the permission of Jesus Christ, to whom belong all power in heaven and on earth, end quote. Consider that one statement he made once again with me. He said, as he was escaping death, he said this, I realized that I was immortal Until my master's work with me was done. What a statement that is. And this is the same lesson we are learning here from Peter and the angel. Our work, brothers and sisters, our battle, our service, and all our days are not in the hands of men, but in the hands of God. That is the point. And this is the conviction of the peaceful mind. Our work is done and the battle is over when God says that they are. My brother and sister, be faithful to the Lord, steadfast in purpose, in whatever circumstances you may find find yourself. God may deliver you from a trial, or He may keep you in the trial, but your duty is to trust Him at all times, knowing that all your times are in His sovereign hands. John Bunyan was in a prison cell when he wrote the best selling book of all times. Which one? Pilgrim's Progress. This book has blessed more people than we can count. Bunyan did not waste his trial because he knew that God had not forgotten him. Therefore, he served him even in prison. Our work is done and the battle is over only when God says that it is. In the meantime, we keep moving forward. Here's the third conviction of the peaceful mind. Here's the third conviction. God is for us. God is for us. Verses 11 through 17. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. We don't know what the other place is. He just went to another place. Now the Christians who were praying for Peter were gathered at Mary's house. This Mary is the mother of a man named John Mark who was the writer of the gospel of mark and barnabas's cousin according to colossians chapter 4 verse 10 since mary's house was their meeting place it was probably very very big and the main place the main meeting place for the entire church you see not every christian sold everything they had right some of them kept their possessions to be of service to the church but think for a moment what peter must have felt like while he stood outside of the house, waited and waiting for them to let him in. Likely, he heard the entire commotion inside because he eventually told him to be quiet. Rhoda was too excited to let him in. The other brothers were busy debating whether Rhoda had gone crazy or whether the thing standing outside the gate was a ghost. This would have been a perfect place for an apostolic facepalm. Thankfully, Peter didn't do that. Instead, Peter was there to share one clear message. God is for us. He will not abandon his church. And in particular, he tells the believers to share this with James. This James being not the brother of John, of course, who was dead by now, but James, the brother of Jesus. As we will see later on, James was quickly becoming one of the central leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Why did Peter want James to know what had happened? Because Peter wanted to encourage James, as the man who would take such a critical role in the church in Jerusalem, Peter wanted James to know, to rest assured, that God would finish what he started. Wicked man may try to stop us, said Peter, but tell James God will bring his work to completion. God is for us. This being the case, who can be against us? Now, at this point, I know what you might be thinking. What do we do about James, the brother of John. How can we say God is for us when we just lost a brother? Notice that we don't hear the brothers and sisters at Mary's house asking that question. We know they were sorrowful, but they did not question Peter's good news. This is because God is for us even in death. In fact, isn't it the case, my brothers and sisters, that almost the entire point of our Christian hope is to say that our greatest enemy, death itself, has been defeated by our Lord, then it would have been a contradiction to the very essence of the Christian message to be thankful to God for Peter's deliverance, but angry at God for James' death. But we'll return to that in a few moments. Here's the next ever-growing conviction of the peaceful mind. Here it is, the way of the wicked will perish. Verses 18 through 23. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not... Give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What is the point of this? Evil will not go on forever. Why is this? Because time is always leading us to the end. As Gollum's riddle to Mr. Bilbo Baggins said, this thing all things devours. Birds, beasts, trees, flowers. It slays kings, ruins towns, and beats mountains down. Time. It is only a matter of time before we all have to face that day. The evil day, our meeting with death. Herod enjoyed luxuries and power, and have power to kill at will and unjustly. But Luke tells us how he met his end. After the people praised Herod as if he was a god, Herod failed to correct them. He took the glory as if the praises were true. And so the Bible says that God sent an angel to kill him. According to a doctor who wrote a book titled The Bible and Modern Medicine, intestinal worms were rather common during this time, and this is likely what killed Herod. But as Luke said, Herod met his end because our times for both the righteous and the unrighteous are in God's hands. James, the brother of John, was killed by this wicked ruler. But as it is normally the case, Herod forgot that his days as well were numbered and that everything, riches and power and time included, must come to an end. In the end, brothers and sisters, justice is always served by God himself. No one gets away with anything. And there is only one king who possesses all authority, all power, and whose life is not subject to the passing of time. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who lives forever. Herod should have thought about that before he made war against Christians, my friend. Our days are numbered as well. Tomorrow may not come. Tomorrow may not come. Therefore, today is the day of salvation. Today, you must come to Christ Jesus in faith, receive his forgiveness, and be saved. Do not wait until tomorrow. Here's the next conviction of the peaceful mind. The word of God is unstoppable. The word of God is unstoppable. Verses 24 through 25, notice the contrast here between Herod and the word. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. What a contrast. While Herod died, the word of God continued to increase. I love what Martin Luther said regarding the Protestant Reformation. Listen to what he said about the word of God and the Protestant Reformation. Some of you have read this before. Luther said this, and I quote, I have opposed the indulgences and all the papists, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. I did nothing. I left it to the word. What do you suppose is Satan's thought when an effort is made to do things by violence, or may I add, by worry and anxiety? Satan sits back in hell and thinks, how fine a game these fools will make for me. But it brings him distress when we only spread the word and let it do the work, for it is almighty and takes captive the heart. And if the hearts are captured by the word, the evil work will fall of itself, end quote. That was Martin Luther's conviction. The word did it all. The Protestant Reformation was the work of the Word of God. The Word of God is bound to increase, meaning its influence cannot be stopped, not by Herod, not by any ruler, not even by Satan himself. The Word of God will always accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. In verse 25, we see a preview of this. Saul, the former Jewish terrorist now, servant of Jesus is about to engage in his first missionary journey, thus ensuring the ongoing increase and multiplication of the Word of God into all the world. And if you are in doubt, just look around you, my brother and sister. For your brothers and sisters are proof positive that the Word has never stopped increasing, and it never will. These, then, are the ever-growing convictions of the peaceful mind. Now, having looked at our passage, and in an effort to be practical, let me leave you with a few words of counsel. This won't take very, very long, just a little long. Not very long. There's a difference there. So here's a few words on how to grow in peace and fight worry. How to grow in peace and fight worry. First thing, know your God. Know your God. In the war against worry and anxiety, nothing takes first priority as knowing God does. When these Christians prayed, they prayed to a God they knew and depended upon. Peter rested peacefully in that cold prison cell because he knew his God and he depended on him. Do you know your God? Do you know your God? Do you know God to be both good and sovereign over all things? Now, going back to John Patton and his trials and his tribulations in the New Hebrides Islands, let me recount for you what he said as he looked upon the graves that he himself had dug. One grave held the body of his dear wife, The other grave held the body of his dear son, both of whom died on the mission field. As John Patton looked down upon these graves, and as he contemplated the sorrow brought about by this tragedy, what kept him strong, faithful, and unwavering in his commitment was precisely what he knew about God. And I'm going to tell you what this is. Referring to the painful loss of his dear wife, John Patton said, and I quote, "...I felt her loss beyond all conception or description. In that dark land, it was very difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstances." But feeling immovably assured that God, my God and Father, was too wise and too loving to err in anything that He does or permits, I looked upon the Lord for help and I struggled on in His work. End quote. Did you hear those words? Did you notice the important detail? Did you see what changes everything, what changed everything for John Patton in the midst of terrible sorrow, trials, and tribulations, what kept worry and anxiety at bay for John Patton? Even in extreme sorrow, even in extreme loss, was his view of God as good, as wise, and as sovereign. The bigger your view of God the lesser the potential for worry and anxiety to take over our lives. It is all about your understanding of who God is. Here's the second thing that we can do. Meditate on wisdom. Meditate on wisdom. Turn briefly to Proverbs chapter 3. I want us to read together what Solomon said to his son because this this is also about sleeping well. It has to do with sleeping and having a peaceful mind. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Listen to what Solomon said to his son. Proverbs 3, 21 through 24. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Spend time in the wisdom literature, says Solomon. Spend time meditating on wisdom. Read it, meditate on it. And when the time of trial comes, you will be able to sleep well. Next, remember God's past faithfulness. What do you think Peter did as he stood, slept in that cell? He remembered what God had done in the past. And so probably he thought, if it is his will, he can deliver me again. And if he doesn't, I'm always in his hands. Remember what God has done for you in the past. Here's next. Don't neglect prayer. And the Word. In other words, master the basics prayer and the Word. For the Word to increase in the world, it must first increase in us. The Word of God must spread in our own hearts. The Word of God must have the greatest influence in our thinking, in our affections, in our opinions, etc. It begins with us, but let us also pray for the increase of the Word. In our society, the Word of God, brothers and sisters, is not bound. It is free. Pray for the ever-increasing influence of the Word in the world. Second, do not neglect prayer. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you notice what that verse says? The cure to anxiety is not necessarily a change in circumstances, but supernatural peace, which comes through supplication and thanksgiving. It would do you much good to further meditate on that passage later on this week. And here's the final one. Consider the promises of God. Consider the promises of God. I said that I would return to consider James, the brother of John. So here we are. He died, most likely by beheading. Peter was delivered by an angel. Both in death and life, beheading and deliverance, the Christian church continued to grow. Peter did not become discouraged by James' death, neither did the rest of the church. Surely they mourned him deeply, but they did not stop moving forward, spreading the gospel of hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? What was their hope? Their hope was what we are promised by God. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, Our only comfort is that we belong in both body and soul life, and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. These Christians did not give themselves over to anxiety, over to worry, over to depression. They kept serving, even as they experienced the sorrow of the death of James and our Stephen earlier on. They suffered, yes, but they did so with hope. You see, hope, 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 is the cure for the anxious soul. Not an empty hope, nor wishful thinking, but hope rooted in the promises of God. Christians die. They die on the mission field. They die by accidents, because of illness, because of old age, etc., etc. James died under the sword of an unjust ruler, but hope does not die. It never does. In fact, I want to give you a picture of the hope of the Christian which can dissolve his or her anxieties, going back to John Patton. When John Patton expressed his desire to go take the gospel to cannibals living on the New Hebrides Island, the objection came from a Mr. Dixon who said this, The cannibals, John, you will be eaten by cannibals. Now, we don't know the intentions of Mr. Dixon, but his words were true. After all, that's what cannibals are known for, eating human flesh. But please listen to how Patton responded to this objection. Here is the Christian hope that never dies. I quote, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of a risen Redeemer. Brothers and sisters, the cure for the anxious soul is hope rooted in the historical fact of the incarnation of the Son of God. God is for us whether we live, whether we suffer, whether we rejoice, or whether we die, because the favor of God for us is displayed on a person, not on our comforts. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, the man from Nazareth. He died, he rose again, and he rules from heaven. Therefore, you know God is for you. The early church kept on moving, advancing, preaching, serving, worshiping, studying, witnessing, and fellowshipping together, even in the midst of persecution, death, suffering, and all the rest, because the history of the church is ultimately the story of the resurrection power of Jesus, who by his Spirit is changing the world one soul at a time, one family at a time, one town at a time. Both Stephen and James died in that hope. Peter lived the rest of his life in that hope. So, my friends, let us be like Peter. Peter, And let us cast all our anxieties on God because he does care for us in soul and in body, in life and also in death. We are the Lord's. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the testimony of the first Christians. We thank you for the testimony of our brother, ancient brother Peter. He was a man with many faults, and yet what an example. As he lay there in that cold, dark prison cell, he trusted you. He slept because you sustained him. Help us to learn from him and from the rest of our first century brothers and sisters what it means to cast all our anxieties upon you. And as we go through our trials and tribulations, as the world continues to turn darker and darker, Father, help us to return to the one who remains unmoved, the rock of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now help, help us to understand what it means in real life. And may your spirit help to apply these things to our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.